You're listening to the Surf Simply podcast, bringing you news and opinion about surf culture, characters, coaching and competition from the team at the Surf Simply Coaching Resort. Find us on facebook.com slash surfing or at surfsimply.com. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Surf Simply podcast. It is Tuesday, the 10th of November, and we're back. We're back. We're hey, back, everyone. Hey, everyone. <laughs> um, unfortunately, this is not the highly anticipated episode of us sitting next to the wave pool in the north of Wales, getting ready to go and have some fun. It's too bad. It is unfortunate. Um, the wave pool, unfortunately, broke, so we're back in Costa Rica. We're getting set up, ready for the season, and uh, with me now is Rue Hill. Hello, everyone. And Asher King. Thanks for having me back, everyone. And I am, as always, Harry Knight. So I feel like I'm very cynical about uh, wave pools now. This is the second trip where 48 hours before we were supposed to be getting in the water. No, we, were, we did have a week, week or so, two oh, weeks. They, yeah, they, no, that's true. They gave us like a week's notice, didn't but they? But moral still, of the story is the wave pools keep letting you guys down. Yeah, I feel like the right business decision at the moment for Surf Simply is still to just stand back and let these technologies unroll, see all the potential problems and, uh, and, and not really embrace any of them until we know that they're going to work properly. I suspect that that may well be true, so sadly. You, yeah. So what was the excuse this time in Snowdonia? Snowdonia haven't actually said what the... What the, the well, it's something to do with the drive mechanism, like the, the mechanism that actually drags the, the sled through the water. They haven't said exactly what it is. Uh, we'll just wait and see. But the, they were always going to close for the winter anyway. Mm-hmm. So, so what's actually happened is that they, they've closed early yeah for the for the winter season it's too bad i was really excited to hear how that went in the show harry Um, what have you been up to this break uh i've been kind of busy actually i spent a couple of weeks in california hanging out with my girlfriend i went camping american style Ooh, that's good fun in a 40 foot rv that is good fun um which is quite cool you and me were in france for a while that was that was pretty cool had a great time there doing the the coaching project over there and then i was back in the uk for a few weeks getting cold and wet and miserable it was lovely Mm -hmm. And we went to our friend's wedding, our friend Alex Espeer, who was a former Surf Simply coach, and he now runs a, a really fantastic project, actually, for 12 to 16-year-olds. Yeah, so if, if any listeners out there are looking for coaching for their kids, uh, check out Initiative Surf. He runs a fantastic program. But yeah, we went to his wedding in Cornwall, which was great, because there were some good waves down there, which never happens in Cornwall. Nice. It was, off, it was offshore, it was like shoulder high, and uh, I had uh, one of the best surfs I've ever had in England down at a little secret spot called Tregardoc, and I don't mind saying that because I don't live there anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I like the fact as well that actually it was, we got down there and it was really, really good surf, and we rocked up at the beach that you and me worked at for a couple of years, and you worked there for a long time. One of the best days of the year, probably. And we both looked and went, eh, swell boards? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that was fun. Any American listeners in the UK and in Europe, that what are very popular are these big foam boards called swell boards that are like, uh, they're, uh, yeah, they're just like foam, basically, aren't they? They're like massive nine-foot body boards with a tiny little plastic fin in the back. Anyway, we had a lot of fun on those, didn't we? Yeah. Those are pretty good fun. Yeah. Harry, while well, you were in California, you also uh, picked us up a little, a little present, didn't you? I did. And uh, yeah, very big thank you to Malcolm Campbell. Who massive, shaped thank you, myself massive. and Asher uh, a couple of bonzers, which uh, very excited about. Very beautiful boards. Most beautiful board I think I've ever had. And very excitingly, he said that he might be up for uh, coming on the show and having a chat with us, which would be really cool. That would be really interesting. So it was funny that you guys got some bonzers because I surfed a bonzer for the first time, really, um, when I was out in Indonesia. So I was mm-hmm. out in when you guys were in France. I was in the Mentorwise for a couple of weeks, looking at. Uh, a couple of places that we might run some surf simply little satellite coaching projects in future 
and uh, also meeting up with uh, Erica Tagashi, who's doing all the designing for our uh, new apparel line that we're launching, mm-hmm. and uh, Kai Amosoto, who's helping us uh, with the whole business side of the apparel uh, line, which is really interesting. So we have, we've decided we're going to have our annual general meeting at Macaroni's for a week every autumn. Not a bad spot for a yeah, board meeting. So. so we went over there, and Eric brought up a bonza with her as well that's a little bit like yours, Harry. It's that kind of old 70s single thing kind of shape, the yep. teardrop, where it's got a lot of width at the front, and then it kind of goes narrow in the tail. And uh, I was just feeling a little bit lazy when I was there. <laughs> and so I was surfing that board, which is a bit higher volume than my shortboard, out at Macaroni's every day and it was so fun mm. so I'm, I'm quite interested in, in how, how what those fins are doing how it's working um, so for the listeners who don't know a bonzer is a really really interesting design concept it was pioneered by Malcolm Campbell wasn't it Yes, yeah, probably so around was, the 70s yeah Malcolm and his brother Duncan Campbell came up with the idea early 70s 1973 I think and it was the first it was the first proper multi-fin yeah, first setup surfboard. most of the boards back then were using single fins. Most of the, most of the boards just had a, a big single fin. And one of the problems with a big single fin is when you put it over on rail, it can slide out a little bit. It's very hard to, to surf them aggressively. You tend to just sort of draw these long lines. And the, a bonza specifically refers to a, a board that has a big single fin in the middle. And then out on the side, either one pair or two pair of very small, like really, really small. They almost look like the, the little sort of nub fins, yeah, the little, little guitar picks. They're out on the rail, and it's then combined with a very aggressive double concave that runs through the fin setup. And it's all designed to channel the water and hold the rail of the board hard into the wave, which means that, that those boards could be surfed. I mean, they didn't really take off at the time, and I think it was largely to do with the fact that they don't work very well surfed flat and cruisy yeah, it's funny. like a 70 single the, fin. I think the design concept was actually a little ahead of the surfing at the time. Absolutely. So back then, the surfers were surfing in a really pivoty fashion. So, mm-hmm. yeah, they, they would draw kind of sort of more abrupt lines. And those bonzers really, really work well on a rail. They get a lot of drive in them. So, for example, if you're doing a cutback, the second half of the cutback will feel like you're accelerating. You're getting a little bit more speed out of the half. Whereas a single fin, it's just going to kind of be a more pivoty turn. Yeah, so I felt like I had a single fin out with me as well. And I felt like with the single fin, I would push a turn. And yeah, after the halfway point of the turn, the board would feel like it was starting to slide a little bit and I was starting to lose speed. And then exactly like you say with the Bonza, I felt like the rail was sticking in the water and I was still increasing my speed. And even if I mistimed the end of a cutback a little wrong, because of that old the old teardrop shape with the volume a bit further forward, once I turned in the white water, I popped out and I was back on the face again. Yeah, it's really interesting because the big difference is the fins and it's, it's amazing how much different the board feels in a turn. Before we get too into talking about fins, I should also say that, Harry, you've got a new blog and you've just done a really long article going into detail about fins, which has been received pretty well. So any listeners that yeah, want did. to read a little bit more about that, where do they find that, Harry? Uh, you can find my new blog at hjmnight, night with a K, uh, dot com. So H-J-M-K-N-I-G-H-T dot com. Very nice gif used on the blog post. I was very pleased with my gif. Yeah, really interesting a uh, fin <laughs> configuration gif. Well, I was going to have like a whole run of five photographs. And I thought, I wonder, I wonder how hard it is to make a gif. It turns out it's really it turns easy out to make quite a gif. easy. <laughs> so I, yeah, I made a little gif where Probably it was, it was one, one surfboard and all the fins kept chopping in and out. Oh, that's cool. I, did, yeah. I checked that out. Yeah, I was very pleased with it. <laughs> is it nice being able to see, Asher? Because you had your eyes done. Oh, that's the biggest difference from this season to last. In the break, I used the opportunity and a little bit of time off to get LASIK surgery. And it is life-changing. So a good friend of ours, Alex Wilkinson, 
reckoned that his tube riding got significantly better after he got his eyes done because he could actually see what was going on. So I haven't had a good opportunity yet to see how my tube riding compares, but I'm going to guess it'll be a little bit better. Yeah, the the recovery period was kind of rough. It was, it was two weeks where I felt like I had sand in my eyes every day, but now I can see everything like I've never been able to see it before. It's amazing. When I'm out of a lesson, I, I, I can keep my eyes open the whole time when I'm duck diving. I've never been able to open my eyes and look at what's going on around me. So when you're surfing with contacts in, because a lot of people ask me about this and I've never done it, but you mm-hmm. have to shut your eyes the whole time you're underwater. You can't sort of look around. Because when I'm no. duck diving, I like to like do my duck dive. And if the waves only just detonated, you get those kind of plumes, those sort of columns of white water. And to an extent, you can kind of like weave your board through them when you're coming up. Oh, I wouldn't know that until now. (laughs) Didn't even know they're there. (laughs) Yeah, it's the worst thing in the world when you're out for a surf and you you lose one contact because you can still see pretty well. Your eyes adjust pretty quickly and you can just see close with one and distance with the other. But you get a terrible headache. And it's just such such a bad situation when you lose them in the water. I can imagine it. A, a friend of mine, uh, I used to spend a lot of time at Lakey Peak when I was younger, and a good mm-hmm. friend of mine who lives out there, Matt, uh, lost one of his eyes when he was younger, and he was a really good surfer, but he used to have to deal with incoming sets by sort of rocking his head from side to side. Yeah, you have to kind of turn your head to see. You said that he could sort of, yeah, get that sense of distance. Well, not now. Now I'm um, half hawk. <laughs> Okay, so this week we are going to do a little bit more of a loose episode. There's so much happened because we've been off air for such a long time. There's a huge amount of stuff happened in the surf world. So we're not going to do the main feature that we normally do. We're going to spend a little bit more time talking about the six world championship contests that have taken place since we went off air um, and going over the the WSL contest season in a little bit more detail. Uh, We also don't have a superhero of surf this week. Just there's a lot of news to talk about. So should we dive in? Yeah, let's get into it. Um, So I guess the big news story that happened actually very shortly after we recorded the last episode was that Quicksilver filed for bankruptcy and the the surf world blew up about it. And actually the details weren't so bad. It turns out that Quicksilver itself is actually broken up into several smaller companies. And this is Quicksilver USA division has filed for bankruptcy. Quicksilver have said that their European division and their Asian Australian division are still going strong. It's funny, me and uh, Harry got in a bit of an argument about this in France. I said that if Quicksilver filed for bankruptcy in the U.S., there was no way that Uncle Sam wasn't going to try to go out after their overseas <laughs> Asher, assets. Asher but... was very convinced of the all-reaching <laughs> universal power of the IRS. I was like, oh, the IRS <laughs> is going to be all over Quicksilver Europe. But it turns out, I guess it's not really over one umbrella. No. No, yeah, they, are, so. they are separate companies. Actually, you should know better than to get stuck into an, a fact-based argument with Harry. Yeah, I thought that, you know, I went to school with, for four years about finance and accounting. <laughs> I might have this one, but no. You don't have the tenacity, though, to just quietly sneak off to the toilet and spend 10 minutes Googling stuff on your phone and then return to the I, I did do that. We, we, had this ar- <laughs> we, we had this argument in the supermarket in France, and as soon as we got home, I was on the computer. <laughs> like, I don't know why Ash, Ash was watching a surf movie or actually going for a surf. I was finding out about the Quicksilver <laughs> <laughs> I was like, ah, oh, foot in the mouth. Um, but for anybody, I, who- I must say, listeners, this is this is due to Harry's desire to find stuff out, not Harry's desire to win arguments. I just think that that's a, well, a little bit of both. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but for anybody who's interested, uh, we've got a very good article. Matt Arnie wrote a very good article on the Surf Simply magazine for us. So if anyone would like to read that, I'll post it in the show notes on uh, surfsimply.com/podcast. 
And uh, and a little bit more news about Quicksilver. Uh, last week, did you guys see that Dane Reynolds and Quicksilver finally parted ways after about twelve years? Yeah, I didn't, I did didn't you, see that. Did you hear why? Like, was it from his end or their end? So or? I know that there are a couple years left on his contract, but I guess part of the clause in bankruptcy was that uh, all the contracts get renegotiated, and I imagine it was a little hit and pay. And, yeah, uh, yeah, I think it was. He's he got just to been decided, on a fortune. Oh yeah. I mean, he's been one of the most influential surfers of the last 10 years. I, I would be interested to, to find out more about what sort of price points the uh, free surfers are getting. I know that uh, CJ Hobgood in a recent interview was talking about when he was surfing for Globe back in the 90s, he was getting about 800000 a year. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I mean, that was... Dane Reynolds must have been on over a million a year. Yeah, you think. would think yeah. so. I mean, because he, he moves a lot of products. He's a very recognizable face. And he and Craig Anderson really appeal to a very specific section of the surf culture, which Quicksilver, I think, is increasingly more and more alienated. Yeah, distance from. And speaking of Craig Anderson, I also read an article on Beach Grit the other day that said Craig's trying to get out of his contract as well. That's interesting. I wonder who Quicksilver are going to be looking to. Well, they got the young guy that they're promoting a lot right now is Mikey Wright, the younger brother of World Tour surfer Owen Wright. Mickey Wright? Mickey, Mikey, tomato, tomato? I don't know. Mikey, I hope you're listening to the podcast. He's an incredible clarify. surfer, though. I remember seeing footage of him at G-Land as just a tiny little, I don't know how old he was, maybe like 10 or something, mm-hmm. just weaving through these. Well, he, he got that shot. It was, was it Young Guns 3 when they took all the kids to G-Land? He That's just got insane. Yeah, I saw him in France uh, before they ran the contest. I was just watching some of the free surfing down at the contest site, and it was probably one foot. And he did the biggest air, like full rotation frontside air on the smallest section I've ever seen. Probably a one foot wave and probably five feet out. I imagine Mr. and Mrs. Wright must be very pleased with their three kids. Yeah. I mean, they must be really super proud. Especially given how most parents would feel when all three of their children said, No, Mom, I, I want to be a pro surfer. <laughs> no, no, we're all going to do it. No, yeah. we're not. All three of them are going to make it independently of each other. That's pretty I impressive. Mean, it's pretty isn't it? amazing. Um, so the next piece of news that, that definitely caught my eye, and it's, it's a little sad, but I'm sure over the last sort of year, year and a half that the video's been out, I'm sure a lot of you listeners will have seen the Duct Tape Surfer uh, video that was doing the rounds a while back on social media. This was uh, a lady called Pascal Honor who suffered a spinal cord injury and was duct taped to the back of one of her son's friends to go surfing. Very sadly, uh, she passed away earlier in September. There's a lot of little stories, you know, inspirational type stories about surfing that I think sometimes are a little bit contrived. Yeah. But this one, like, really brought a tear to my eye. It was so moving. I yeah. mean, this lady just comes across as such a sweet lady, and she talks about how she was just driving along in the car, and she was just talking with one of her friends, and she turned to them to make a point for a second, and that was it. That was her Bang. becoming a quadriplegic. And she was obviously found it so difficult. She was obviously such, a, such an outdoors kind of person and found mm-hmm. it very difficult not being in the ocean. And it was a friend of her son's. Yeah. That they would go surfing together and she would always come down in her wheelchair and want to watch them surfing. And he just thought, well, you know, I can do this and, he, and take her in the water. So he just duct taped her to his back and went out and took her out. And, you know, they yeah. wipe out. They're surfing some pretty heavy waves as well, like overhead mm-hmm. high and they go over the falls and wipe out quite a bit. And, yeah. You know, she's obviously just synced her breathing in with when he's going to be under the water and they kind of make it work. And uh, and it's just watching their relationship develop is just incredible. Uh, is incredible. And there's something really nice in the movie that comes across, I think, that you can see that this is just two people who want nothing from each other. 
There's yeah. no subtext or ulterior motive. She's just happy to be in the water and he's happy to take her out surfing. Yeah. And I think it was that actually that really kind of got to me. So my um, condolences go out to her family. Absolutely. Uh, anything caught you guys' eyes over the last couple of weeks? Well, going back to the wave pool thing, I noticed that some, some guys are talking about opening wave pool just uh, outside New York. And yeah. now they're not using that wave garden technology, are they? They're going to be using that style of that pool in somewhere in Japan? Yeah. The name of it was the Sagaya Ocean Dome. I think it was the Ocean Dome and it was in a town called Sagaya, right? Yeah, I think that's right. And I, I don't know how this bit of footage slipped under my radar before because we've talked a lot about uh, wave, wave pools. pools and... I just watched the video for the, for the Sagaya Ocean Dome, which you can find on YouTube or on their website, which is Long will, Island uh, Surf Park. I will post it in the show notes. And in the show notes, of course. And like, it's incredible. They're getting barrels, they're getting proper barrels, you know, yeah, and not, not kind of coming out chandelier, but coming out dry haired, doing big airs. There's Julian Wilson and Owen Wright yeah, just going mental in Julian this pool. Julian Wilson and Owen Wright in the video, and they're surfing it so well. And it, I mean, it, it, it has a bunch of different variety in the waves. You know, some waves kind of have interesting little sections to do airs. Some are just kind of draining tubes. It looks so much fun. So I was looking at this and I was thinking, why are we even looking at other wave pool technology? I mean, this is so much of a better wave than anything that I've seen anywhere else. I, I, I look at the wave in Wales or in Dubai and I'm kind of like, oh, it might be fun, kind of novelty, see where the technology is at. But I'm not like frothing to go and have a go at it. This wave, I would be absolutely frothing All to go over and surf it. it. You know, even, I think it's better than yeah. 90% of beach breaks 90% of the time. No, it looks insane. I think the unfortunate thing is that most of the time, so that, that uh, the Ocean Dome pool is part of a, a sort of water complex and most of the time they just had waves rolling straight in that people could splash around in on bodyboards. The idea was that it could produce these big waves so that they could hold surf contests and things like that in there. And my understanding is that the cost per wave to produce what you see in that video, you know, these barreling waves is way beyond what you could make feasible. You know, you, you would have to pay three, four hundred dollars a session to cover the cost of the, the waves that you would surf. I'd be really interested to see the actual breakdown of cost per wave because when you work it out, I mean, I'm sure when you're traveling all over the world to try to get barreled, I'm sure the cost per wave works out to be quite high. Oh, for sure. I think that's true. To throw this one out to our listeners, because I'd be really interested in, in any of our listeners who can sit down and, and do the maths on it. I, I was thinking about this when I was out in Indonesia. We, we were quite lucky in the Mentalize this time around. We got waves every day, pretty much. But I've been on surf trips before where I've gone away for 10 days and had one day of surf. Yeah. I remember one... One time I saved up for a whole summer when I, was, uh, when I was a kid to go to Margaret River. And then I was spent six weeks in Margaret River. And I think we had two days of surf in six weeks. So it's pretty much a year of my life that I spent saving and traveling for probably like six or seven waves. Like less than a minute of on-wave time. <laughs> yeah, and, you know, I think actually you look at the price of a, of a wave park like that and you yep. say, okay, it's going to be $300 an hour. That's insane. I'm not going to pay it. But then if you actually look at, okay, I'm going to take a week off work. There's the opportunity cost of what I've what I'm not earning. Yep. And then, of course, there's the flights and the travel and the peripherals and then your yep. dependents that are coming with you. And, you know, and you look at, well, okay, how many waves am I actually getting a session? I, I don't know. I'd, I'd, I'd be interested to get a, like a broad data set from anyone any of our listeners have just been on a surf trip. Yeah. If, if it's still fresh enough in their mind that they can do a back of a napkin calculation. Yeah, I think it could add up very quickly, couldn't it? The, um, 
this wave pool is an interesting one as well, isn't it? Because they're trying to crowdfund it. Yeah, they're asking for $500,000, which is nothing in terms of actually being able to build the thing. Mm-hmm. What was the, the cost of building the wave garden in Wales? I want to say it was a four or five million pound project. I think it might have been more than that. But I, I think I read that this Long Island wave park, I think they were talking about it being a $7 million project overall. So I think, they, I think this is just seed money that they're trying to crowdsource. If you're going to put a wave park somewhere, Long Island seems like it'd be a pretty good spot for it. You're really close to New York City where there's a huge population of surfers. And for most of the year, the waves are freezing. I absolutely agree. I think New York uh, or somewhere in that area is a no-brainer in terms of a location to build a wave park. I don't think these guys are going to do it. And um, I I think that purely based on the quality of their website. It's a bit bit rinky. (laughs) It looks a little bit like I've just pulled... Uh, a kind of a 90s template and then I've stuck a, a logo of a VW cam- camper van with some palm trees on the front of it. <laughs> so they might not be the guys for the job. Or, you know, maybe finance and engineering is what they're brilliant at and web design is not. Speaking of Wave Gardens, didn't they just have the Red Bull Unleashed event at the Wave Park in Wales? Well, not just, but yeah. So back at the end of September, they held, I guess, the first like real proper surf contest in a, in a wave pool. And it, it, it was pretty cool. Red Bull ran the event. It was called Red Bull Unleashed. How do you think the success of this contest was compared to the World Tour contest they had in Allensville in the 80s? Oh, yeah, that, that's very true. So, yes. <laughs> okay. Aha. The, aha. <laughs> Boom. Someone's done his research. <laughs> um, so, yeah. Okay. So, maybe not the first contest. Certainly the first contest in recent years. I mean, they invited a really stellar cast. Like, pretty much everyone that wasn't yeah, on the CT. Yeah, pretty much everyone not on the CT that you'd have interest in watching was there. I mean, it was Albie Lair who won. Evan Geisman was on. Yeah, Jack Freestone. It was, in, it was a pretty all-star cast of characters okay so here's a question for you both would you prefer to watch a a heat at the wave garden in wales or would you prefer to watch a heat at one of the weakest beach breaks on the world tour because that's really where the benchmark is right it's got to be better than the worst wave on the world tour in terms of absolutely from a spectator point of view absolutely i I mean i think what was the, the interesting thing was this was red bull took the opportunity to change the format a little bit and so the way that, that it's, say, you and me were in the water, Roo, the way that we would compete is that I would surf one wave. Say it's a right-hander. I would surf one wave. You would then surf a wave. And whichever of us surfed the wave best would get one point. And it was the best of five. Or first to three points. Right. So it's like a series of duels. Exactly. So it's a series of sort of duels. So it's a very, very different format to what you saw in the water. Now, the, the thing that was a little tricky is, and I, I don't really know why, because Red Bull are re- normally really on this. They didn't live stream the event. Yeah, that was weird. And so all that they've put up, they put up a few little edits. And so you can see a few of the good waves. But what you don't get is any of that drama that builds, you know, when there's a heat running yeah. and it's like, all right, whoever surfs this one wave is going through to the next round. Like it's all on. Suddenly this becomes really, really important. And you didn't, there was no way to get any of that from the, the video edits that they put out. Which seems ironic because the one sort of best feature of running a contest at the Wave... Is you uh, know when the heats can be run. You know Absolutely. when it's going to be run so you can actually advertise it and then stick it out live. So the question of Snedonia versus the worst Wave on tour. I don't know. What would you say was the worst beach break this year? Maybe Portugal, maybe Brazil? This year, it was probably the, the quickie pro at Snapper, wasn't it? That was pretty bad. Yeah, pretty but, um, I mean, usually, I would say Huntington's probably the, the weakest one. I usually don't even bother watching Huntington. But regardless... the results. Taking the format aside, I thought that the wave at Snedonia was a bit of a letdown when you put the best servers in the world on it. I wouldn't say it was quite steep enough or uh, 
or quite performancy enough for them to really show what they got. And there wasn't any variability. Kind of every wave came in, and it was the same slopey shape, and the surfers kind of fell into sort of a homogenous way to surf the wave. Everyone did kind of a half first turn, and then several pumps, and then a throw tail or another kind of high-risk maneuver at the end. But the lack of variability in the wave made it really, really uninteresting to me, which I was bummed about because I was super excited about that contest. Well, there's two things there. The first thing, just going back to what Harry said, was that you were watching the highlights. Now, have mm-hmm. you guys ever experienced this phenomenon when you're watching one of the webcast events you know, live and someone pulls into a barrel and you don't know if they're going to come out or not and then they yeah. come out and you think, oh my yeah. God, that was insane. That, you was, know? that was the best barrel I've ever seen in any competition. <laughs> ever. <laughs> ever. I can't believe you just came out of that. <laughs> and I'm like shouting to Marine in the kitchen saying, like, come and check this out. Come and, check this out. and then they show the replay and it just doesn't look anything like as impressive it's it's all that that spectacle isn't it it's that build of tension it's like this is it's on the wire he needs these points is he going to come out oh my god Ah. but when there's none of that tension in there it's very hard i think it's something that the wsl don't do very well with their highlight reels that they put out is that they show you all the waves that went down in a heat but they don't they don't tell the story of the heat they don't put it together like that i absolutely agree i mean one thing if you if you watch you know soccer matches or most kind of field games and you you watch the highlight version you know where Mm -hmm. instead of the full 90 minute game they trim it down to like 15 minutes yeah and they keep the drama all the way through. So yeah. you can watch it as if you're watching the game. Yeah, and someone, someone narrates the drama when it's not there. Could you know, put Martin Potter on it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, and the second thing is, going back to the wave uh, pool event, is I wonder whether maybe the way to make it work when the wave isn't variable is to make a greater emphasis in the judging criteria on, a, on variety. On, yeah, creativity on the wave or variety and maneuvers. Well, or, or, yeah, so you could specifically say, all right, this heat, is going to be judged on a full rail turn. This mm-hmm. heat's going to be judged on the best air. So it's it, look, you, you you can do whatever you want, but but you've got to set up. It's the best air or the best rail turn is going to set it up. But in regards to that, I love in a heat when the surfer has to match what's going on on the wave with their maneuver mm-hmm. choice. So let's say snapper this year it was a terrible, you know, terrible waves, but there were really big scores thrown like Italo Ferreira for example, for really powerful maneuvers and then maybe mixing that up with an air on the same one. So I, mm-hmm. I like matching what the wave throws at you with your maneuver choice at the time. So I wonder if uh, Kelly Slater's new wave pool is going to be very different. Tell us about that, Asha. Yeah, so I had the chance to meet Kelly in France and he kind of dropped the news that he is starting a new wave pool and he was a little bit mysterious about the location. He said it was somewhere in between Northern California and Southern California. So that doesn't really narrow it down, but you met Kelly in France. I didn't. It's been pretty well publicized, <laughs> huh? Yeah. So, if you didn't notice on all of our social media feeds, I, uh, I got I, I lucked into a media pass for France. Thank you to the guys over at Surf Bunker. But yeah, I met him in the competitors area, and he said that his wave pool should be opening up within the next month. Which is kind of crazy. He's kept it under wraps. Yeah, I mean, I kind of feel like a wave pool is quite a big. It's like, a big endeavor. It's quite quite big. I yeah. guess. So, he's quite into his conspiracy theories, isn't he, Kelly Slater? Yeah. So maybe he's taken a few tips from the Roswell guys and he's kind of kept it, it undercover. <laughs> yeah, but this is going to be a full-size prototype pool, and it's only going to be a right. So it's a bit of a bummer for us goofy footers. Uh-huh. We're kind of sad about that. Yeah, it is a little sad. I, I know that he was working on doing, because that, that most of the wave pools at the moment produce what's called a displacement wave. So it's just it's effectively it's just a wall of water moving away from something that's displacing the water, whether mm-hmm. it's a, a, a big 
sled that's moving water out of the way or, or physically dropping water from a holding tank. And I know that what he was trying to work on was to create that rolling mechanism that you see in the, you know, in the actual ocean. And the important thing there is that on a wave that rolls in like that, the water at the bottom of the wave is actually being sucked up okay. very slightly. And that's really important because it means that when you bottom turn, you've got water flow hitting the bottom of your board going that way. Ah. Whereas on a displacement wave, which is Wave Garden, which is Wadi Adventure and Dubai, it's pretty much everything else. It's just literally a wall of water moving this way. So there's no, there's no in suck like you would get with an open ocean wave. It's really interesting. So in my mind, I imagine that it's easier to make a wave like the one in the Kelly Slater pool start to barrel. Hopefully. I don't know, possibly, but but certainly talking with Matt, who went up there and surfed it uh, before he wrote the article for, for us, he, he said that it does. It feels a bit funny when you bottom turn. You don't get any... You don't get the same feedback. Well, you're not, you're not getting the same kind of push off the bottom. You're not feeling that acceleration as you come off the bottom of the wave. Exactly. Uh, another thing that's happened while we've been away is the Global Wave Conference, which was in Cornwall in the UK, and then they went on to the Houses Ooh. of Parliament in London. Again, Matt Arnie on, at Surf Simply Magazine, which you can just find very easily by Googling Surf Simply Magazine, has done a really, really good long-form article about all of the people that were there and the various subjects that were covered. For those of you that don't know, the, the Global Wave conference was a getting together it was a two or three days i think yeah three day event and it was a lot of people coming together technical experts in the field of environmentalism of well they were talking about sustainability in the surfboard industry and they had talk uh, they had speakers coming along talking about uh, different aspects of that talking about the things that we can do as surfers as individuals the things that businesses should be doing and then talking more broadly about just as people concerns that we have about um the ocean i I like to think that you know this is something that's important to us as well as individuals and professionally redefining that stereotype of surfers as, as sort of being laid back kind of beach bums and actually these are people that are really interested and proactive and coming at it from a science point of view talking about some of the important issues to do with the environment and um, with some of the keynote speakers that were there, like Tom Curran and Brad Gerlach, that yeah. had to have been uh, some of the most all-star sessions to ever go down in Cornwall, <laughs> yes, paddling okay. out and seeing Tom Curran at your local peak. The London Surf Film Festival happened as well. Strange city to have a surf yeah, film festival. I was about festival. to say, for someone not uh, too familiar with the UK surf scene, London seems like a weird place to have a surf film festival. It's just a five-hour drive down to Cornwall where the yeah. waves would probably be onshore. I think the advantage of London is that it, it, it is a hub city, isn't it? I mean, Taj Bari used to have a house in London because so much of his world travelling meant that actually it was reasonably convenient for him to fly via London, spend three days in his flat in West London and then get back on the plane and fly somewhere else, as opposed to bouncing around and staying in hotels. Mm-hmm. Well, they had a good turnout for the film festival, and uh, some of the films, I think, were, were fantastic. Some of them, not so much. <laughs> uh, the, uh, the, we'll just go through some of the winners quickly and mention I'll just talk about a couple of the films that, that sort of stuck out for us. The, the best film went to uh, Uncharted Waters, which is a documentary about Wayne Lynch. Yeah. What an interesting guy. Yeah. I don't know if you guys remember Litmus, the yeah. video. Do you remember that that all time classic? Yeah, and it actually you you probably you're probably a bit young for this, Ash. Yeah, it's a bit of a <laughs> retro <laughs> video by the time it got to me. Yeah, it came out on as a VHS video stuck to the front cover of a surfer's path, I think, back yeah. in the nineties. 
And uh, I remember that meant I had two surf videos, that and Thicker Than Water, going around on loop in my That's caravan. That's a really good two to have in your video quiver. It is, they are pretty good. Litmus, unfortunately, now, if you rewatch it, is the quality of the, the footage is so poor, it, it barely is watchable. Yeah. Thicker Than Water is still fantastic. It's I think so we amazing. still have it on loop in the rancho, actually, back at Surf Simply. Litmus was, uh, was kind of the first video uh, to explore alternate designs, wasn't it? Yes. Yeah, it, so it was really kind of started that whole movement. The Thomas Campbell movies were sort of the, the follow-up. Yeah, the follow-up to Litmus. Yeah, and the, there were a whole load of others, but yeah, Litmus definitely sowed that seed. And it, I think Litmus really made it, was the first movie that made it socially acceptable to walk down to the beach for something weird under your arm rather than a, a 6'2", 18 and a quarter short. So board. no pun intended, it sowed the seed for it's the seedling. <laughs> so I, I, know that I, I watched the trailer for Uncharted Waters. I haven't seen the film. definitely on my list of things that I'm going to watch. Yeah, um, I'm really looking forward to seeing Fish as well, actually. I'm not quite sure what the Spirit of the Festival Award actually no, means, I, but I saw the, the trailer for Fish, and I'm really excited to watch that one. Oh, it makes me want to list fish so bad. <laughs> I loved that one quote in it from Rob Machado where it says, where he says, in the 1990s, 95% of surfers were riding the wrong board. Yeah. And, and, and I think that's a really interesting thing to say because, well, number one, it shows how we can all make such a, a big error in our choice of equipment purely because the sea is this big uncontrollable variable like you know we've talked about on the Mm -hmm. show before so when you're relying on your own personal anecdotal feedback when you're trying to test equipment and technique yeah it can be worse than having no evidence i mean it can be really misleading so 20 or 30 years down the line what do you think that we're doing now are we going to look back on and say oh my gosh that was ridiculous that's a very good question isn't it because you sort of you look back and you laugh at mistakes of the past like wow that was crazy with the subtext always being like well of course now we know everything (laughs) yeah Yeah. and it's like obviously we don't well i mean i I suspect just in terms of what people are wearing just the attitude we take to protecting ourselves from the sun when we're out in the water i think is you Mm. know i take a a gentle ribbing on a regular basis for my stupid bucket hat and silly sunglasses. You but do look ridiculous. Exactly. I look ridiculous, but I'm looking after myself and I'm but making sure that I'm... it is ridiculously effective. It's, it's reasonably effective and I'm taking care of my body. But, I, you know, the, the attitude is... I, I imagine in 30 years' time we'll look back at people paddling out in a pair of board shorts in the midday sun. <laughs> I think midday Costa Rican sun. Yeah, and Ooh. I think that I think that the last ten years have been full of surfers wearing baggy shorts and t-shirts, you know, in the surf. And I think that in the future people will look back at that in the way that we look at Wimbledon from the twenties, and everyone's wearing like long pants, you know, like trousers down to their ankles. Yeah, we're going to oh, get a little smarter. But see, go back to the eighties, and the, uh, the the Wimbledon short was pretty tight. Yeah, that's true. It's gotten a lot looser. Maybe we're going to be wearing Wimbledon shorts in a couple of years. <laughs> The idea that uh, the average surfer is going to be on the WCT guys model, I think, is absolutely ridiculous. It's just less fun. You know, you're gonna, you're, the, your wave count is going to be lower. Uh, when you're on the wave, a lot of times you're going to struggle. I mean, you look at some place like where I grew up in Florida, almost every kid's riding a 5'9 by 19. Yeah, I mean, it's something we've talked about on the show before, and we talk about when we're coaching the guests at Surf Simply every week. People get on short boards so that the radius of their turn is smaller. But if it's not the board that's the limiting factor in how tight the radius of your turn is, there's no advantage to riding a smaller board. In fact, there's a disadvantage because mm-hmm. you've got less speed, you know, yeah. less straight line, down the line speed to burn off doing your turn. 
And Absolutely. so you're kind of holding yourself back. And there's so much cultural baggage. I mean, I suspect the big thing that's really going to change, or I hope is going to change, and that we're something of a forefront of it, is that, that this idea that, that surfing is coachable. You know, that surf schools can teach you more than just how to stand up in the whitewater on a big lump of foam. Absolutely. And uh, it, it really is a funny one right now. People would take the attitude that, that surfing is not coachable, that you, can, you, you have to go and earn your dues and get beaten up by the waves and get rolled around and get nearly drowned and, and that there are either rippers or there are kooks and no, n- nothing between the two. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's such a funny attitude that, that, that we have. Yeah, I mean, I'd like to see surfing evolve away from this, what I think of as quite a pretentious subculture of Mm -hmm. the 20th century. And I'd like to see surfing in the 20th surf, in the 21st century, the 20th century, to go on to be considered like a sport. And for all of that pretentiousness of, no, no, we're not just a sport, we're something more than that. I'd like to see that fall away. I feel like it doesn't add to the experience. I feel that approaching surfing as a sport gives you all of the joy and yeah you get to be out in the ocean you get to travel to these amazing places and meet these wonderful people and that all happens on its own and that happens with other sports too Absolutely. Um, and yeah I, I i was reading as as we talked about on the episode before i was reading uh, william finnegan's barbarian days and yeah. he has in my opinion that very 20th century attitude to surfing and i'd like to talk about that on another show but maybe if you guys read the book first and then we'll maybe we'll do a whole episode where we where we talk about that and Break maybe it down. Even get him on the show barbarian days cool. analysis that yeah. sounds good so have you guys seen all the stuff all the commotion going on with john john and jet blue yeah i saw that over the uh light up my social media over the last couple of days yeah i think john john who was uh at lax through a connecting flight and somehow he fell prey to the classic baggage handlers destroy your surfboard unlike the average surfer he has a massive social media following took to instagram and the entire surf community is now berated JetBlue with some very interesting social media messages. See, now I thought that was interesting because y- you said there it's the baggage handlers that trash the boards, yeah. not JetBlue. And I, it's funny, we always end up blaming the airline that carries the boards. But it's my understanding that the airline just hires the baggage handlers, right? The airline has nothing to do with it. The airport, mm-hmm. LAX, hires the ground crew that, ah. that load and unload the boards. And JetBlue pay landing fees to LAX airport to land to have the plane refueled to have the you know everything that happens so really it's it's the fault of LAX airport or whichever airport it was that trashed the the board bag it's their fault not JetBlue's if you look at the photo of John John's bag it's not just like he pulled the board out and there's a ding in the rail no, it happens. <laughs> it looks like someone's gone at his bag with like a hammer and a knife. I'm, I'm pretty it looks sure like it must have gotten a fight with a tiger. Yeah, <laughs> I'm pretty sure it must have dropped off trolley and it's been run over. The the whole baggage train has just run over the board bag. I feel kind of bad. I mean, I feel bad for John John, obviously, but just in in the name of balance, I feel really bad for that JetBlue executive that woke up in the morning, kids went off to school, had his coffee, and just thought, oh, just. Just check Instagram, see if anything good's on there. <laughs> Boom. <laughs> I, I did read that there was a good article. I think it was uh, Beach Grip did a little article, and they actually called up JetBlue and had a pretty good chat with, with someone reasonably high up. Beach Grip's been posting some really good articles lately. Yeah, they've got, they've got some good editorial. Props but to you guys. I thought one of the interesting things that they pointed out was that it does say quite clearly on JetBlue's thing that it's one board per bag. And there were four boards and a lot of other stuff tucked into John John's board bag. So, <laughs> well, that's—I mean, okay, but I mean, that's kind of like saying, uh, 
you know, that's that's kind of like saying, oh, because you went, you had too many boards, rather than charge you more, we destroyed all your boards. <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, I don't know. I, I fly JetBlue a lot because my sister lives in Florida, so mm-hmm. I do the San Jose, um, Fort Lauderdale run quite a lot. And I must say, they've they've always been great. And actually, when I flew down from Florida with them just like two weeks ago, the guy leaned over and he said exactly that. He was like, how many boards are in your bag? And I had three in there. And he said, before you answer that, just be aware that it's one board per bag. If there's more than that, I have to charge you more. So if you say there's one, we're all good. Wink, wink. And I was like, okay, there's one. There's and he one? was like, no problem. And he just checked me <laughs> in. It was fine. You know, so That's good. You can put more than one board in there. You just have to pay extra. Yeah. So, I, But even if you don't pay extra, I still don't think that justifies breaking the board. Yeah. It's two different conversations. That is true. Excellent. I tell you what, though. It did make me think. Uh, of something that you and I were talking about before in terms of the, the type of board bags that are available oh, on the market. Yeah, that bombs me out massively. And I, th- this is an open question to, to listeners. I would be interested if anyone has any technical knowledge on this. But why are there not any hard shell, like the modern polycarbonate hard shell suitcase, you know, the ones that you can lift up with your tiny little finger? The ones that cost like Super 20 or $30 like, at yeah, Walmart they're, now. They're now 20 or $30 at Walmart on the sale. Why has no one made a board bag out of that? So Swellshell are a company which make hard coffins. And yeah, I actually bought there's... one not so long ago. And it's supposed to be for three boards up to 6.6. Six, and it's hopeless. Number one, because it doesn't have enough rocker to actually accommodate the three boards. Mm-hmm. It's sort of, mm-hmm. it's grinding against the nose of the boards as it tries to almost bend them straight. So you kind of don't want to put them in there. Yeah. Um, but mostly it's just super heavy. Yeah. So the, the, those ones, there's two companies, there's Swellshell and another company, and they basically make the same thing. Uh, but it's molded ABS plastic. Um, and in order to get the rigidity and the strength, it's quite thick ABS plastic. So, yeah, I mean, they're about 20 pounds empty. It's ridiculous. So I, if, if our power line takes off, if we start to take over the world, <laughs> can I make a polycarb board bag? <laughs> Please do. You're listening to the Surf Simply podcast. On to what I guess is going to be the closest thing we're going to get to this week as a main feature, a little WSL roundup. When we went off air last time, we were just coming into the Trestles event, the, the men's Hurley Pro and the women's Swatch Pro at, at Trestles. And a whole lot has unfolded and since then. And a whole lot has unfolded since then. So just uh, as a very quick flash roundup, at Trestles, Mick beat Adriano de Souza. Adriano de Souza. Uh, Mick beat Adriano de Souza. I would just, just say that because we've been chastised for pronouncing his name incorrectly. We Adriano de Souza. Yeah, Adriano de Souza. It's not uh, pronounced like that. Anyway, <laughs> uh, he it, <laughs> uh, Mick won the final, and I think that that then put him into the yellow jersey on the tour mm-hmm. as the as the winner. Freddie P announced his retirement from the World Tour and has now dropped out. In the women's swatch pro, Carissa Moore won over. Bianca Buttendag in the final and that put her into the yellow jersey I must say actually of the women's trestles event it was really cool to see uh, Lisa Anderson and Sofia Milanovic surfing the heritage heat against each other I really enjoy all of those heritage heats I think they it's are really, really cool, cool when they, they get some of the old masters out and I don't think I've seen a women's one before is that the first time they've done that yeah, I believe so. that was the first one that was really really cool Lisa Anderson surfing she has such nice technique and style and Sofia, Sofia Milanovic was actually here in Nosara last year for a, a few weeks filming and we got to hang out with her a lot. I went surfing with her a bunch and she's a really, really fantastic lady. And she's just started a project down in Peru called Proyecto Sofia. I probably mm-hmm. pronounced that right. <laughs> she, she set up a surf camp there and they're looking at a lot of the 
best young surfers in and around Peru, mm -hmm. uh, particularly looking at kids that aren't going to be able to afford to really pursue surfing. And she's taking them on, schooling them to make sure, you know, they've got a, a rounded education as well as coaching them and trying to nourish their surfing and then even taking them around some, some of the WCT events next year. I just think that's absolutely fantastic way for someone to be spending their time because she's like a household name in Peru. Yeah, first South American world champion. Yeah. And Before Gabriel Mendina. So I just, I just think that's a really fantastic thing to be doing. Big fans of Sofia here on the show. Yeah, very cool. So the women then moved to Portugal and for some reason, rather than going to Supertubes, they went to Cascai. Uh, which is, Which is not much of a wave. Horrible wave. Really it's bad wave. <laughs> it's the closest wave to Lisbon, but it's uh, as a beach, it's better known for windsurfing and kite surfing than, than wave surfing, and it just like wheat washy beach break. Yeah, uh, not a very know. interesting event to watch. Um, anyway, Courtney Conalog beat Lakey Peterson in the final. I think then took back the yellow jersey. The men and the women both then went to France. Gabriel Medina beat Big Derbage in the final, which did a lot for his rankings, and Tyler Wright beat Tatiana Weston-Webb in the final there, and Carissa Moore took the yellow jersey back from Courtney Conlogue, so that's been flip-flopping all so yeah, over the place. on the women's side, there's a bit of a yellow jersey tug-of-war going on. There has been, and the, the men then went to Portugal, and they did go to uh, Super Tubes in Peniche. Philippe Toledo beat Italo Ferreira in the final. And I think that just is well, it's worth saying a few things about that final, because that was... Absolutely that phenomenal. That was an amazing Felipe final. Toledo's opening wave in that final, which was a 10-point ride, was a fantastic example of why it's worth spending time getting better at surfing. Because those waves were not very good. No. In fact, if I'd walked down to the beach, I might not have even bothered. Probably Padre. would have just gone for got coffee. A coffee. Probably yeah. would have gone for some vino verde and some sardines, given that we're in Portugal. Yeah. Hey. Uh, but yes, Felipe Toledo took off on a right hand. It's quite a powerful wave, but messy and frothy and bumpy and kind of doubling up. And he did this beautiful big off the top to create a little bit of speed. Mm -hmm. Then he threw the fins right out, landed in the transition, then did a huge 360 aerial and landed coming right down the face, went straight into a bottom term and two more maneuvers. Yeah. I mean, it was just phenomenal surfing. Incredible surfing. And then right after that, Italo Ferreira answered back with one of the most impressive airs I've ever seen in a contest. Yeah, and, and actually we were talking before about how this it's so much more fun watching some of those waves live because there's the drama of what's going to happen. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I went back and I've watched all of the waves out of that final four or five times and they just get better and better. They yeah. could have all been a closing wave in a Kai Neville movie. Yeah, it was brilliant. <laughs> so listeners, if you, haven't, if you haven't seen it, I would definitely go on YouTube and dig out there. Just watch the, the waves from the final of the, of the Portugal event. I think it's yeah. pretty safe to say that that Brazilian storm is a real thing. A couple of years ago, you know, everyone didn't like the Brazilian style and I uh, thought they were a little loud and rambunctious in the water. But, man, those World Tour competitors, particularly Fleep in, in Italo, they are absolutely amazing. It's yeah, you, you don't hear anyone any longer making comments about a lack of style or, or anything like that with the Brazilians. No, Philippe has the most, one of the most stylish above-the-lip approaches ever. Yeah. And Italo has impressed everyone in all the conditions this year. Talk about his power surfing, his backhand small wave stuff at, at Snapper Rocks. It's kind of been such a wide variety. And he's a really polite guy in, in the post-heat interviews, too. He does come across very likable. I mean, Gabriel Medina, I'm sure, is a very likable guy. He's a bit abrasive. I, he comes across a little uh, 
like spiky. Yeah, you know, it does. But I'm sure it's just an artifact of his English and perhaps the way he just subconsciously carries himself. It sort of reminds me of Dolph Lundgren's character, you know, <laughs> out, character out of Rocky <laughs> Two or Three or whatever it was, you know. Uh, whereas Felipe Toledo, you know, he comes across as just like a really, really nice nice kid he's happy to be there Mm -hmm. and on all of that means that it's going to make pipe really exciting it is well before we get to that there is something even more important to discuss the surf simply fantasy surf pretty important that is pretty important uh asher been taking it pretty serious you're winning sam's chomping at your feet sam's coming but so uh since you're already on the podcast (laughs) it'll be be a tough Um, one to invite so paul's claiming it uh, you're currently in third place and lining yourself up a spot on the on the podcast. So the, the people in first, in number one and number two, are Asher and Sam, and Sam, who we had on the podcast back in August. Yes. <laughs> in the women, Corin and Boyce going one and two as we uh, go into Honolulu. So yeah, the, the next events for the men, it's Pipeline on December eighth. Although the Triple Crown kicks off on November twelfth. Uh, so actually, in two days' time. For the women, it's Honolulu Bay on November 21st, which will decide the world title. I always really enjoy the Hawaiian leg of the tour just because of the time difference from where we are. We're on central time. But for the whole of the States, it kind of starts like lunchtime early afternoon and goes through, to the, through to the evening. It's like a very civilized time to be watching. Yeah, yeah it's a perfect time to watch and the I've surf got, We've got a new sofa here in the studio so we yep. can watch the Pipe Masters. Sounds like a viewing party to me. It's looking very comfortable, isn't it? So, so have I got this right, Harry? I mean, Mick really wants to win this event, doesn't he? Okay, so yeah, it's it's a little tricky. So right now, Mick Fanning is in the yellow jersey as the as the leader. However, and this is remembering that even just turning up, they're pretty much guaranteed. I think is it five hundred points or a thousand points? Uh, one of the two. One, one of the two. Anyway, thousand. There is four hundred and fifty points between the top three. So, uh, on the men's world tour so it's super super tight so as we go in to the this final event if mick wins then he's got it but that's the only thing that guarantees him the world title if he's second even if he makes it into the final but gets second place adriano or philippe can still win it if they win the event so basically it's whoever between those top three uh, whoever makes it the furthest in the event is going to win the world title. Uh, yeah, pretty much. I mean, Gabriel Medina is in there as well. Owen Wright and Julian Wilson are mathematically still in it. But for all of those guys to, to stand a chance, like they really need the other guys to fall very early in that the competition. That is so exciting to have that many possibilities going into pipe because it's such a big playing field and kind of anything can happen there. It's the Super Bowl. It's my favourite yeah. event to watch, actually. I mean, I really enjoy watching uh, Chopu and Cloudbreak and J-Bay as well. Yeah. But Pipe's my favourite because it's it's just big and it's wild and it's savage. You know, Chopu, you pretty much, you always know where the goalposts are. You know, mm, it's yeah. going to be the left, it's going to be the barrel. With Pipe, you know, it can be smaller and their back door and then going for bigger airs at the end. Or it can be, you know, big throaty lefts. Second yeah. reef. And the big close-out sets. And, oh. You know, is it going to be the, like the roll-in and then the double-up on the inside? We're going on the square first reef one. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's yeah. such a great event to watch. I'm so excited. There's a lot going on. So, yeah. And then in the women's tour, again, there's, it's, it's between Carissa Moore or Courtney Conalogue. There's less than a thousand points separating them, and so again, if if Carissa Moore makes it to second place, she's she's got it. But in any other position, if Carissa Moore falls in the semi-finals or before, then Courtney Conlog can take her down. So, quick on the spot question: Who wins the men's world title? I mean, I mean Mick's got to be the favourite. Mick's got to be the favourite. He's very solid out in pipe. He's spent so many years there. He's got so much experience out in the mm-hmm. water there. I don't think any of the wild cards are going to have that much over him. Philippe Toledo. Still has that question mark over him in, in words of consequence. Did make the quarter, quarterfinals last year. It depends on the size. You know, 
I mean, Philippe Toledo out of Chopu, you know, he, he, he didn't look dominant at all. He really looked like he was at the edge of his comfort zone. Whereas when the waves are smaller, obviously he's on fire. So, you know, if we're, if we're looking at like head high, a little bit overhead, backdoor, airs, barrels, I mean, you know, then, yeah, I think Felipe could be in there. If it starts being big, you know, big, proper, iconic pipeline, I don't think that, that Felipe is going to be able to hold his own against Mick. Yeah, it's a funny one, isn't it? Because when you talk about Chopu this year, Philippe had that famous 0.0 heat total yeah, out yeah. there when he got eliminated. But then again, last year, Pipe was pretty good, and he made, got a quarterfinal result. Yeah. And a lot of people think he only got put out in the quarterfinals because he met up against Gabriel Mendina, who was kind of on that world title run. Um, so the other thing that's obviously then interesting as well as we come into these last two events is the guys down at the bottom of the tour. Who's um, going to make the tour next year? Exactly, yeah. So uh, down at the bottom of the men's tour, we've got Dusty Payne, Glenn Hall, and Ricardo Christie. They are all fighting for survival. Um, in the women's, Laura Enever and Sage Erickson are both in the same place as well. And if they don't pick up at least one solid result, they're pretty much out. So just for our listeners' uh, benefit, so that you understand the bottom, uh, I think 10 or 12 out of the top 34 drop off the tour at the end of the year. Yeah. Uh, but then the top 10 or 12 out of the WQS, which is a much larger body of surfers doing a much wider range of events, mm-hmm. they go up onto the, onto the WCT, which is the world title uh, race. And you can be in both. So you, you, can, can, both. You, can, yeah. you can drop off the tour, but you can also have simultaneously re-qualified and sort of take your own spot, so to speak, exactly. which is what um, Kolohe Andino is probably going to do this mm-hmm. year. I yeah. think he's going to drop off on the CT rankings, but it's looking like he's a pretty surefire to win the WQS this year. So glad to see him back on tour next year. There's a couple Absolutely. other really interesting surfers that are looking like they're going to make it. Uh, Jack Freestone. Really oh, that would be great to see him on tour. Yeah, really interesting to see him. I think he has a very well-rounded approach, meaning he can do all the airs. He's pretty good in the barrel. Kanoa Irigashi, an 18-year-old from Huntington Beach. Is, I think is he's pretty much it. guaranteed on it, isn't it? It's, there's a lot that can change because we've got the two big WQS events. Which Hali-Eva I believe the Haleiwa waiting period opens tomorrow. Day after. Ah, the 12th. Um, I think that 2016 is going to be the year for Kaloha and Dino because he's finally shaved off his beard. Must be. <laughs> it's like, okay, now I'm ready to take things seriously. I'm going to stop looking like a hipster musketeer. Well, um, I think Chloe has the beard because, like me, he has a bit of a face scar. But unlike me, he can actually grow a little facial hair. <laughs> I was about to say, at least Chloe could grow a musketeer-esque beard, unlike John John Florence. We should probably wrap up pretty soon, but just to finish off, anything caught your eyes over the last couple of weeks, YouTube-wise? Oh, YouTube-wise? my goodness. Psychic Migrations. Oh, yeah? Well, you I think must I, watch Psychic Migrations, listeners. I, I think listeners that will probably do a movie review on Psychic Migrations at some point. I'm sort of looking I at... I still haven't Asher watched that one Harry. yet. But. Oh, Harry, you need to watch it. It's, Am I going to be upset with choppy editing? And, no. No? No, it no, is oh. beautiful. It's, it's my favorite movie, surf movie of the year. And a, a, That's a big claim. Little, not too much of a spoiler alert, but after watching this movie, you're going to want to buy a fish. Yep. I've already bought one. You're going to want to get another one. <laughs> <laughs> The one thing that I did see that really blew me away was the virtual reality Tahiti edit that the WSL put up with Samsung. That oh, was that was incredible. Oh, that was breathtaking. So, so again, listeners, if you haven't seen this, uh, we'll put it in the show notes. But basically, CJ Hobgood drives to Chopu down the road. They go out on the boat. Uh, they swim around a little bit with the photographers under the waves, and then he catches a wave, gets barrel, comes out. The whole video is probably, I don't know, four or five minutes long. Yeah. But it's all filmed on a camera, which, which is filming 
in 360 degrees. They're up, What's left, even more than right, that, isn't front, it? it's, back. It's full spherical vision. You yeah, can look so, up, so, down, mm, left, right, wherever you want. Yeah, so you, and what you can do is, is watch the video on YouTube. You can't watch it on Safari. It has to be on Chrome or Firefox. Mm-hmm. And then you can use the mouse on the screen and, and look around as if it's, you were there. It's unbelievable, it's isn't it? It's really, really cool. And you paddle into the wave. You take off with CJ and you can just pause it. And look round, left, right, up, down. Up, down, all over the place. Oh, my God. Uh, the, the weird thing I don't get, like, you can't even work out what the camera is sitting on. Like, they've, they've post-edited out whatever pole or, or, or whatever's holding it. God, it, it's yes. so cool. Last week also saw it was the fifth anniversary of Andy Irons' death. And there were a couple of really cool little edits. Surfer Magazine put up a little documentary, uh, a little short 10-minute documentary. And Stab Magazine... Did a, did a really amazing Yeah, they, they sent a couple of sort of younger, hotter surfers. They dug out a load of Andy's old boards that I don't know. that One of them still had the signature all over it. I assume it was a wall hanger in a yeah. billabong shop somewhere. They took Dane, a, uh, Noah Dean, and Clohe out at Macaroni's. Yeah, and they, they, they gave them a couple of Andy's old boards and uh, sent them out. But actually, I thought that one of the most interesting things with that video was just the interview with Bruce. Yeah, it was really interesting. Um, he was very open about how much that had affected him. But yeah, really, really cool couple of little edits there that are well worth a watch. All right, so that's about it for this week. Sorry for the slightly more rambling nature of this episode. We'll be back next time with a much more scripted main feature and we'll have a superhero of surf for you we will try to be back on a little bit more of a regular basis now that we're back from holiday can i say how happy i am to be back here with my headphones on juiced up on coffee talking about surfing with you guys it's just so good to be back Uh, and also can i just thank all of the listeners who've sent us uh emails and messages and all of the people that have come up to me uh, during my travels and, and here in Costa Rica and have given us really, really nice feedback about the podcast. You know, we started doing this just for fun because all three of us really like podcasts and we like talking about surfing. So mm-hmm. it seemed like a good hobby to take up. We didn't quite anticipate how many hours each episode would take. Yeah. But, you know, it's, it's just really, really nice to, to get good feedback because uh, yeah. it just feels good. So thank you to everyone. Thanks, guys. Thank you very much. And uh, for now, bye-bye. Bye. Bye. That was the Surf Simply podcast from the Surf Simply coaching resort in Costa Rica. For more about Surf Simply's video coaching courses for experienced surfers and technical coaching for entry-level surfers, go to surfsimply.com.